I am happy to join with you today in what will go down as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our country. Martin Luther King, opening line of his I Have a Dream speech. Now I want you to remember that no bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. General George S. Patton, opening line of his speech to the troops before D-Day. My loving people, we have been persuaded by some that care for our safety to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes for fear of treachery. But I assure you, I do not desire to live to distrust my faithful and loving people. Let tyrants fear. Queen Elizabeth I, 1588, opening lines of her speech to her army on the beach awaiting invasion from a foreign foe. You have just heard the beginnings of three of the most electrifying speeches the world has ever known. Three signposts pointing the way to the biggest mystery in public speaking. Somehow, a tiny percentage of speakers is able to connect so completely with the audience that they lift listeners up into a state of rapture and exaltation. Maybe you remember the, how you felt the first time you heard a speaker take the stage and absolutely electrify you. It might have been Nelson Mandela making a searing courtroom address, or Mother Teresa cheerfully throwing sticks of spiritual dynamite at a prayer breakfast, or it could have been Steve Jobs, Oprah Winfrey, one of those fantastic commencement addresses, or it could have been a TED Talk that uh, attracts millions and millions of views online. Speakers at this level, and I'm talking about the pinnacle of the public speaking pyramid, do more than just inspire us. They change us. They change how we think, they change how we feel, and sometimes they change the kind of lives we want to lead. Years after we first hear them, their words may continue to live in our heads, and their ideas can remain a force of inspiration and guidance for the rest of our lives. How do we explain this kind of electric connection between a handful of speakers and a live audience? Well, as you know, there are all kinds of theories from the ancient Greeks to the postmodernists, and now even the neuroscientists are getting into the act. In the end, though, we find ourselves resorting to the language of magic. We say, what charisma, she's enchanting. Or, what a spellbinder, he's mesmerizing. Or we say, the speaker casts a spell over the audience. And they do cast a spell over the audience. These days, working with speakers at TED Med, the health and medicine edition of the TED conferences, I get a front row seat to experience some of that magic in person, from the initial idea, through successive drafts, live rehearsals, and finally live performance. But to this day, I will admit that one, when one of those electrifying speakers stands up and unchains their lightning, I'm just as dazzled now as I was many years ago when I had the privilege of sitting on the dais 10 feet away from Ronald Reagan and watching him light up an audience and bring 50,000 people roaring to their feet. Whether it's a politician, a preacher, a teacher, or a business executive, the very best speakers, the ones at that pinnacle, work this magic. Amateurs try to explain it away by saying, well, it's all personality. I don't know. I think we've all seen some incredibly charming personalities get on the stage, and even when provided with a very professional script by us, uh, can't talk their way out of a paper bag. And some brilliant members of our own profession like to say, well, there are rules of rhetoric. Follow those rules, and your speech is more likely to be a success. And I say, absolutely, there are rules of rhetoric. 
and they're valid, and they're useful. At the same time, if rule books alone explain the magic of a Churchill or a Jill Bolt Taylor, whose talk called My Stroke of Insight has racked up 8 million views online so far, then shouldn't every speaker and every speechwriter be able to follow the same formula and get the same results? At this point, our friends, the literary critics and the theoreticians, step into the debate and they say that not only does this riddle have no answer, but that we should not even try to decode it. They say, well, that's the whole point of magic, isn't it? It really can't be explained. It's like trying to explain a good joke. All you do is kill the humor. So some mysteries need to be respected, they say. And magic can only be diminished if you try to peek behind the curtain. Ah, but you and I, we're different. We're professional speechwriters, and we really want to know how this particular magic is done. That's why we're here. For my part, I'm happy to take you backstage and share some of the tradecraft we use with our TED Med speakers. But if we're going to solve this mystery, we're going to have to trespass a lot further than that. And so, today, in the privacy of this room, and in this select company of my fellow sorcerer's apprentices, maybe we can work a little magic of our own. The first and greatest secret I know is this. The speaker and the audience are connected at a much deeper level than we ordinarily realize, perhaps deeper than we can even fathom. Lincoln knew this. He talked about the mystic chords of memory that stretch to every heart and that can be touched by what he called the better angels of our nature. I don't think he was merely being poetic. There are invisible lines of energy that go out from the speaker to every member of the audience and back. And the secret of touching those chords is that the speaker embraces a radical vulnerability. Every great actor knows this. When they're warming up backstage, they are putting their ego aside and tuning in as best they can to the heart and soul of their character. And that is why when they walk out on stage, a great actor can read the phone book, as they say, and enchant and enthrall and electrify an audience because they're already connected at that heart level. Many of us have experienced and continually experience this same magical connection in our personal lives when I am coaching a reluctant or a nervous corporate speaker, one of the things I like to ask them is, have you ever had your spouse walk into a room where you were and out of the blue say to you, hey, were you just thinking so and so? And even the gruffest business executive usually has to admit, well, uh, <clears throat> yes, dear, uh, that's exactly what I was thinking. I found that most people in a deep relationship will tell you this happens to them often enough to make them wonder what is going on. With public speaking, something similar happens with a whole room full of people. It can be friends, colleagues, total strangers, it doesn't matter. It's not that any individual listener can read your thoughts, they can't. But collectively, the audience tunes into your emotions, your sincerity, your intention, and the energy of that connection is amplified by the number of people in the room, whether it's 10, 100, or 1,000. And you can see this dynamic in action at any football game. The crowd starts to roar, and they get excited by the power of their own emotional energy, and they start amping it up and amping it up, and it just keeps going back and forth. Now, all this talk about invisible energy and emotional connections between hearts can sound very mystical. Or worse yet, sentimental. Well, no problem. If you like, you can point to studies in neuroscience that show that when a speech makes a deep emotional connection, the audience's brain will sync up with the speaker's brain. Their MRI scans will light up in the same places, in the same patterns, at the same time. 
Okay, but you know that doesn't explain how words going through the air creates this mysterious connection between an audience's brain and the speaker's brain. And it doesn't get us out of the trap of sentimentality. I don't believe that social scientists and neuroscientists intend to be condescending when they tell us that, oh yes, we're wired for empathy. Sentimental stories create entrainment. Somehow that sounds a little condescending to me, but this is not about sentimentality because it's not only the better angels of our nature who can touch these mystic chords. They can be played equally well and sometimes better by dictators and demagogues and demented fanatics. You can light up an audience's brain to set millions of people free or to start a world war. So when we speechwriters talk about our responsibility to our audience, it may be more profound, more far-reaching, and more consequential than we ever dreamed. It took me a long time to learn what it means to act responsibly toward your audience. For half my life, I was afraid to open up and be vulnerable, not only at the podium, but in everyday life. As a kid, I was so emotionally frozen that the other children in the neighborhood called me Mr. Spock. <laughs> As a teenager, I was still frozen up when I became a public speaker and started connecting with audiences. I was like a neurotic politician or one of those very shy performers. Oh, I could relate beautifully to an audience. It was individual human beings that were opaque to me and a little scary. At age 17, I wrote and delivered a speech that won a national contest sponsored by the VFW, the United States Veterans of Foreign Wars. Frankly, I told them what I thought they wanted to hear. My speech was a shameless piece of flag-waving patriotism. Well, it worked. That speech got me invited to the White House to meet the president at age 17. It won me a scholarship big enough to pay for four years at the University of Virginia. Courtesy of the VFW, I traveled the country delivering my flag-waving speech to audiences of 50,000 people, and that's how I found myself sharing the platform with speakers like Ronald Reagan and presidential candidates of both parties. I got standing ovations, my speech was published in the Congressional Record, and I got a very swelled head. All puffed up with egotism, I told myself I was a very clever writer, and that I had figured out how to emotionally manipulate an audience. I was the puppet master pulling the strings, and I told myself that I was keeping my emotional distance. I hadn't revealed myself. I hadn't put my heart on the line. I was an actor playing a part. As you can imagine, the only one fooled by this act was me. It took me years to realize I really believed all those corny, emotional things I had said in that speech. My audience knew it from the moment I opened my mouth. They responded because I was sincere in spite of myself. That is what they tapped into, not the bullshit rationalization I gave myself at the time to protect me from my own emotions. What turned me around was a long, slow process of realizing that if you can't feel pain, you can't feel anything. And I got some much needed humility knocked into me by trying some big things and falling flat on my face. And I met a wonderful teacher who showed me that we can never really hide from another person anyway. And that we're strongest when we're honest with each other with ourselves, and she taught me how to be vulnerable. It's not an easy thing to do. And by the way, I married her. <laughs> now you might say, oh gee Marcus, that's all very interesting, but what has your personal psychodrama got to do with public speaking? Well, I'll tell you. At TEDMED, we work with a lot of scientists and academics and researchers and professors who have been trained to be objective and take themselves out of their own narrative. 
they're frozen up. From college on, they've had it drummed into their heads that the only thing that counts is the data, and that when they speak, they should check their personality at the door. Well, at TedMed, we tell them, yes, the audience wants your truth, but they want it through the medium of your personality. This is one-man theater, or one-woman theater. And that means, well, we don't let them have a podium or any notes, and we tell them, take off the lab coat, ditch the coat and tie. You can't hide behind PowerPoint. You can't hide behind your data. It's just you and the audience on a bare stage, and nothing, nothing between you. And we tell them, and when you get up there, don't show up in your expert persona. Talk like mom. Ms. Merkel must have been listening. <laughs> Talk like a fellow explorer. Talk as if you'd run into an old college buddy and you sit down for dinner and they say, Joe or Sally, what you been doing the last 10 years? And we tell them, you count as a person. How can the audience validate you? if you don't validate yourself. And we tell them, if it's relevant to confess a personal failure or to talk about the pain you've been through, then do it. As you can imagine, this is terrifying advice for many people. But if they can bring themselves to engage at this level, they can win a staggeringly large audience. A couple of years ago, I worked with a TED-Med speaker named Dr. Peter Atia. And Peter said, Marcus, I just want to give a great talk. I will do anything. He said, I know you guys at Ted Med like personal stories, so let me give you five or six of my own experiences, and you tell me which one I should share with the audience. So he told me his stories, and I said, Peter, the one you want to tell is about the time that you felt silent contempt for a diabetes patient because you blamed her for her illness. You walk into the ER, it's two o'clock in the morning, there's a woman in desperate trouble, she probably needs an amputation, this is the story he told me, and outwardly, you treat her with civility, but inwardly, in your own mind, you can't help thinking, this is your own fault. If you had only cared a little bit if you'd done just a few simple things your doctor had asked you to do, you wouldn't be in this mess, lady. I said, Peter, you, uh, you want to open with that story and then shock him. Tell him about the shock you got a few years later. You, a super athlete, you who slavishly followed every nutritional and dietary guideline, suddenly you gain 40 pounds out of nowhere. You get metabolic syndrome and you're racing toward diabetes. Then you tell them about your research and how you think maybe the relationship between obesity and metabolic syndrome and diabetes is exactly the opposite of what the conventional wisdom holds. And Peter said, okay, that sounds good. And I said, but Peter, at the end of your talk, you have to circle back around to that patient in the ER. And you have to say, if I could speak to that woman again today, Here's what I'd say to her. There was a long pause. And Peter said, I don't know if I can get through that without breaking down. And I said, Peter, you're going to have to. So he practiced and practiced and practiced until he could get through his talk without getting emotional. Comes the day of the speech. We're at the Kennedy Center in Washington, DC. The glittering elite of the nation's medical establishment is spread out before us in the audience. And backstage, Peter is still worried. And he's pacing in the wings and he says, I'm about to get up on that stage and tell the whole world I'm an asshole. <laughs> but when his name is called, he gets up and he starts talking and he does fine. He gets through 90% of his talk without losing it. But in the last minute or so, when he gets toward the end, he comes this close. And his voice is almost cracking when he says, sometimes I think back to that night in the ER seven years ago. I wish I could talk to that woman again. I'd like to tell her how sorry I am. If I could, 
I would say, as a professional, I delivered the best clinical treatment I could. But as a human being, I let you down. You didn't deserve my judgment and contempt. You deserved my empathy and compassion. And above all, you deserved a doctor who was open-minded enough to consider that maybe you didn't fail the system. Maybe the system of which I was a part failed you. And then, aware that his talk was being video recorded and was going on the internet where it could potentially be seen by who knows how many people, Peter ended by saying, if you're watching this now, I hope you can forgive me. Every person in that hall was riveted. But at the moment he finished his talk, Peter thought he had failed because he hadn't kept his emotions under perfect control. And for the first few seconds, he was so deep in self-blame that he could not face the audience. He literally turned his back on them and hung his head. He didn't hear the cheers. And our MC, a wonderful guy named Prick Paul Tamber, had to walk out on stage and literally put his hands on Peter's shoulders and face him the other way and say, Peter, turn around and receive the love this audience has for you. At that moment, Peter is knocked back and he's thinking to himself, oh my God, they're giving me a standing ovation. Today, Peter's talk on TED.com is approaching two million views. Okay. If you're the speechwriter, it's easy enough to rip the veil off somebody else's soul, right? If you're the speaker, it's much harder. And as I said, this issue of vulnerability is something I've struggled with all my life, even today. I'm afraid of revealing my own vulnerability as a writer, as a speaker, and as a person. But in this, I am not alone. Many novelists who write scorchingly honest books say that the only way they can convince themselves to do it is by telling themselves, this is all just for fun, it will never be published. And once the book hits the bookstores, they tell themselves, no problem, I'll just run away to South America and never face my family and friends again. But the writers who have the most self-awareness say, look, if it's not a struggle, if it's not painful, if, it's not, if there's not at least a little resistance to putting it out there in public, then you're not being completely honest, and you probably won't reach your audience. And that's how they convince themselves to be candid. Now, vulnerability on a public stage does not have to be maudlin. It can be funny. It can be sly and subversive. One of the most colorful politicians in American history was a man named Earl Long, governor of Louisiana in the 1940s and 1950s. And Governor Long specialized in extreme candor, or as we say in the States, letting it all hang out. While he was governor, he carried on a very public affair with a stripper named Blaze Starr. At one point, Long's political enemies, while he was governor, railroaded it into a mental institution. They had him committed, and it took his cronies in his administration weeks to get him out. But once he was free again, he never denied what had happened to him. He never tried to hide it. In fact, he bragged about it. When he was on the campaign trail, he'd be up on the platform, and he would wave a medical certificate at his audiences, and he would say, now I have here a piece of paper from a whole mess of doctors proving that I am sane. But does my opponent have a piece of paper that he is sane? Another time, and I love this, when Love got along got in trouble for playing fast and loose with public money. And for a while there, every time he made a speech, some SOB in the back of the audience would shout, tell how you stole, Earl. And he'd go, 
It's true. It's true I stole, but I stole for you. <laughs> and that is all of American politics wrapped up in one line right there. <laughs> but the point is, the more we're able to be vulnerable and naked, the more the audience will love us. And if they love you, they'll trust you. And if they trust you, they'll follow you. And that is why things that seem to be irrelevant or purely personal and emotional can have the, a direct bearing on the success of a speech, even if it is a speech about abstract ideas or policies or principles. And by the way, Earl Long got reelected. Now, once a speaker has got their topic, and if it's going to be one-man theater or one-woman theater, it had better be a subject they feel deeply about then it's time to ask the most important question about their speech. What is the gift? At TEDMED, we say every talk has, is about giving the audience a gift. And this is about having one big idea for your speech. We call it a gift because it's something listeners can take away with them, something they can use, an insight that may change how they think about their lives or their work. And we tell our speakers, you should be able to articulate this gift in a sentence or two, because that's all they're going to remember anyway. And so the gift should be striking enough and surprising enough and out of left field enough that your listeners can remember it six months later. Now some speakers say, well, I don't have a big lesson to teach. I'm a scientist or a researcher. I'm focused on my specific narrow field, and my message is for my peers. And we tell them, well, you actually do have a larger message, even if you don't realize it. For example, suppose you're a quantum physicist, and you're going to go talk about your subject to an audience that is half Newtonian physicists who've never heard of quantum, and half civilians who cannot add two and two reliably and get four, like me. Naturally, the physicists in the audience will love your science, but the civilians can still benefit because you can say, okay, what does quantum physics mean? It means we live in a much stranger world than it appears. Randomness is built in at a deep level. Time is relative. Space curves. Electrons are entangled, and everything is connected in weird and wonderful ways. Every speaker has a gift. It's just a matter of finding it. The next thing we tell our TEDMED speakers, and believe me, this comes as a shock to many of them, is this. Your goal is not to convince anybody or persuade anybody or prove your point. Your goal is simply to intrigue your audience enough that they're willing to give your idea an open-minded hearing and perhaps interested enough to ask follow-up questions. If you do that, you're a success. A TED talk or a TED Med talk is not about driving your points home. The whole point of a gift is that it is not forced. It is offered. That's what makes it a gift. Our chairman, Ted Meds, Jay Walker, says the goal of a talk is not to persuade, but to enchant. And there we go, again, speaking the language of magic. And enchantment brings us to storytelling. The way you enchant an audience is by telling stories. The funny thing is, if you really want to persuade somebody, stories are often the best way to do it, because they work on the listener's subconscious. Even if a listener disagrees with your thesis, and doubts your facts and disputes your research and thinks your dog is ugly, a good story still hooks them. And it stays with them even when they're not thinking about it. And so a day later, a week later, a month, a year later, that listener may get up one morning and say, you know, I have been thinking about it and I have decided Jane was right. <laughs> well, perhaps, or maybe, they didn't reason their way to anything. Maybe the story was working on their subconscious all that time, and maybe their conscious mind finally caught up. Now, I'm aware that when we say enchant, don't persuade, we are flouting the advice of one of the most gifted speechwriters who ever picked up a pen or an iPad. Peggy Newman, 
wrote some of the finest speeches delivered by two U.S. presidents. And Ms. Noonan says, a good speech is based first and foremost on logic. It is a good, solid argument. Respect their minds and their emotions will follow. Well, I think the world of Peggy Noonan, but on this I respectfully disagree with her. If the goal is to enchant, not to persuade, then the best strategy is to tell a story, not to deliver a lecture. And a lecture, it's easy to tell the difference, a lecture goes like this. Here's my thesis, here's my proof, and in conclusion, I'm sure you'll agree, I'm right. A uh, story is very different, and one version might sound like this. Here's the idea that grabbed me and wouldn't let go. And here's what I decided to do about it, and here's what I did first, and here is how I ran into a brick wall, and here's how I fell into a pit, and here's how the light bulb went off, and I realized, hey, I am thinking about this thing all wrong. And here's how I shifted my paradigm, so here's how I got out of that hole and got around that brick wall, and here's what I did next, and here's the results we got, and here's what I think the big takeaway of all this is, and maybe this is something you'd like to consider in your own life. Now, if you tell that story, what have you done? You haven't told anybody what to think. You haven't made an argument. You've taken the audience along on, in this case, an intellectual journey, and you've invited them to come. You've led the horse to water, but you haven't forced it to drink. As soon as we mention storytelling, a lot of TED Med speakers say, ah, oh, I know what you mean. You mean tear jerkers. You want me to say, my grandma died of cancer, and now that's why I'm devoting my life to curing it. Well, no. Actually, what we mean is that you can put the whole talk into a story structure. For example, most American speechwriters and historians rank Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech as the greatest American speech of the 20th century. But it doesn't contain a single anecdote. There's not one personal story. King never says, that reminds me of the time that my little nephew Joey did something really cute. <laughs> or, I want to tell you about something Coretta said the other day. But the arc of the speech does tell a story, and I can give it to you in 20 seconds. But first, let me do a little scene setting. It's 1963. African Americans have the right to vote in theory and in law, but in practice, they don't always get to exercise it. And black people cannot go to the same hotels, clubs, restaurants, or even schools, or even restrooms as white people in quite a bit of the country. And so on August 28, 1968, a quarter million people, black and white, descend on Washington, D.C. for a nonviolent protest demonstration. And Dr. King speaks on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial against a backdrop of that giant, magnificent statue of a brooding Abraham Lincoln. And this is what he says in brief. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That is a story in three acts. Act one, somebody made a promise. Act two, somebody broke the promise. Act three, we are here to redeem the promise and to redeem ourselves and the nation. When the whole speech becomes a story, the audience may not even realize you're telling them a story. But if it comes from the heart, and if it's something the speaker deeply believes in, the magic of the story will capture them. Now, I've got one speech writing secret I have never told anybody. And you may think I am crazy, but to me, the most exciting way to look at speeches is in musical terms, as if a speech were a symphony. 
with words instead of notes. And let me tell you how I came to this and what I think it means for speechwriters. My parents were and are great lovers of classical music. When I was a kid, they took us to every concert, Washington Philharmonic, the US Marine Band. They put my brother and me in the high school band. They bought the flute, bought the trumpet for my sister. They bought the piano. They paid for the music lessons. And on weekends, I remember waking up Saturday, Sunday, 6.30 in the morning to the sounds of classical music booming up from the console downstairs. And my brother and my sister and I would lie in our beds upstairs, groggy and sleepy, letting this glorious music wash over us, Bach, Brahms, Beethoven, Gavaldi, Wagner, Dvorak, Debussy. And so I'm listening to classical music day and night. And I'm in the band, so I'm playing and practicing classical music day and night. And I'm into public speaking, so I'm pouring over classical speeches day and night. Cicero, Demosthenes, Mark Anthony, Churchill, Queen Elizabeth, John F. Kennedy, FDR, Martin Luther King, and suddenly it hits me, wait a minute, what if these incredible speeches and these beautiful symphonic tone poems are using the same architecture for movements? And what if they're both using this architecture to take audiences on more or less the same emotional journey? First movement, you introduce the main theme, and the emotion is excitement anticipation. So here's the opening phrase, the first 10 or 12 notes from the first movement of Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. I hope. Second movement. Variations on a theme or a counter melody. The emotion here is quiet intensity. So here's a few notes from the second movement of Scheherazade. It's an oboe, very soft. So uh, now we come to the third movement, which is a crescendo. It's a musical battle or a musical storm sequence, and a whole lot of symphonies and symphonic tone poems have this. The emotion is frenzy. And I'm going to need to ask for a little help with your imagination. You've got to imagine the whole orchestra jumps into this thing, and it's a pitched battle. And and so the fourth movement, you reprise the main theme. You. Uh, have an emotion this time, though, is different. It is a serene sense of triumph. And so here is a few notes. It's the same 10 or 12 notes that we're getting to in the fourth movement of Scheherazade. So this goes on to a swelling chorus of strings that come up and play that same 10-note phrase. But this time, instead of those sort of threatening or ominous sounding horns, it's uh, romantic and it's transcendental. So then there's a coda. And if a speech did that, what would it sound like? Well, I didn't have to ask. I have them right in front of me. It's the same list. JFK, Patton, Martin Luther King, Queen Elizabeth, Winston Churchill, FDR, Mark Antony, and they're still happening today. Last month at our TED Med conference, we heard a symphonic speech, if you'll let me use that term, by Dr. Lena Wen, W-E-N. A symphonic speech, like the notes you just heard, starts with a strong opening fanfare, announcing the main theme, or at least pointing to it, just like that patent line I quoted earlier, no bastard ever won a war. Well, this was Lena's killer opening. They told me that I'm a traitor to my own profession that I should be fired, that I should have my medical license taken away. And Lena went on to tell how she had launched a physician transparency project to encourage doctors to be radically open with their patients. Reveal where your money comes from, including what percentages from drug subsidies, so that when you prescribe a drug, your patients know if you have a financial self-interest at stake. And reveal 
where you stand on hot button issues, abortion, euthanasia, lifestyle choices. So that's the first movement, a startling theme if you can get one. And now the second movement, as you heard, the oboe, slower, calmer. In a speech, the second movement is usually built around a list of some kind, a list of facts. Here's what we're doing, here's what we have, here's what's at stake. The second movement is usually the longest. In Lena's speech on transparency, her list laid out what transparency means. This is what doctors have to do to be transparent. This is why patients love it. And here's what doctors get out of it. Now, when I say a second uh, movement is a list of facts, that may sound like argument and persuasion, exactly what we tell TED Med speakers that they probably ought to avoid. But this is not about argument and persuasion because there is no chain of logic here. In many cases, you could take the facts in that list and jumble them up in any order you like, and then you could take the whole list and put them anywhere in the speech, beginning, middle, end, and it wouldn't make any difference logically, but emotionally. The list has the strongest impact in the second movement. It gives you credibility. After you've announced and hit them with that startling theme, the list implies, see, I'm a reasonable person. I've thought this through. The third movement, the crescendo, the musical storm sequence, it's the shortest movement because it's the most intense. And surprisingly, perhaps, it is not a call to action. It's something much more exciting. It's a promise of action. And so Winston Churchill, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. Or JFK, John F. Kennedy. Let every nation know, whether they wish us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, support any friend, oppose any foe to ensure the survival and the success of liberty. Or Queen Elizabeth, I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general judge and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. Wow. Wow. Well, you don't have to be a head of state or a four-star general to make this work. You can be a CEO saying, people, we're going to conquer this market. Or you can be a coach saying, team, we're going to win this game. Or you can be a teacher saying, class, we're going to ace the big exam. And now the fourth movement is the reprise. You come back to your main theme bigger, bolder, grander than ever, and you take us into the future. You tell us how it's going to feel when we reach the promised land. And Lena Wen, in her speech on medical transparency, did it this way. She said, when doctors come off our pedestals and take off our white coats and show our patients who we are and share with them what we know, that's when we overcome the sickness of fear. That's when we establish trust. That's when we change the paradigm of medicine from one that is secrecy and hiding to one that is fully open and engaged for our patients. And the coda very simply is a line or two where you express affection for the audience or express confidence in the audience. You may have noticed this symphonic structure is a three-layer cake. The bottom layer is the four movements, theme, list, climax, reprise. The middle layer is the emotional curve you build on top of it. Initial excitement, quiet intensity, frenzy, and then serene triumph. And the top layer of this cake is time. The first movement is about the past. This is where we came from. This is the tradition we know and love. The second movement, the list, is all about the present. This is where we stand now. And the third movement is a transition in time. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And that's going to lead us to fourth movement, the future. Tomorrow is going to be beautiful. The first speech I wrote using this musical architecture paid my way through college. And at this year's TED Med gathering, one of the speakers who palpably had the biggest impact on the audience and is now getting some of the most positive press was Lena Nguyen. Now, none of this is meant to be understood as a call for a rigid formula. I have never discussed this symphonic structure with any TED Med speaker or with anybody except you guys in this room. I have never tried to impose this structure on anybody's talk. Lena came to that structure on her own. I did not write that speech for her. I did not advise her on it. 
And I do not believe that there are unbreakable rules for speech writing any more than there are unbreakable rules for music or painting or architecture. Or if there are rules, they're made to be broken. Speech writers are craftsmen, yes. But speech writers are also artists. And like all artists, to the extent that we can as good collaborators, we have to be free to follow our instincts. At the same time, I believe some speeches evolve naturally towards certain organic forms. And I suspect that many speeches wind up with powerful structures by trial and error, by talent and instinct. But even the greatest structure is only an empty vessel until it is filled with passion. Passion for the mission, passion for the gift. Just to prove that I mean what I say about breaking rules, I'm going to break one right now. I usually ask TED Med speakers to stay away from stories that they drag in from outside their own experience. But I'm going to do it anyway because this story really resonates with me and I hope with you. This is a true story about one of the most successful and beloved film directors of all time, Frank Capra. Today, Capra is best known for his Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy Stewart, small town guy, gets to see what the world would be like if he'd never been born, courtesy of an angel named Clarence who hasn't won his wings yet. Now, Capra made feature films in Hollywood for 40 years, but he really started hitting his stride in 1934 when he made a low-budget picture called It Happened One Night. And to everyone's surprise, at the Oscar ceremony that year, it was the first film in Hollywood history to sweep the top five awards. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, Best Actress. And that night, after the Oscar ceremony was over, Frank Capra went back home to his house in Beverly Hills and he crawled into bed and he promptly had a nervous breakdown. He hid under the sheets for days and then for weeks and then for months. He refused to come out. He refused to talk to anybody. He was terrified by one question. How am I ever going to top this or even come up to that level again? Well, what happened next is the stuff of Hollywood legend. According to Capra, one afternoon, while he's cowering and cringing under his covers and the blinds are drawn, the door to his bedroom opens and in walks a stranger. A little nondescript man, nicely dressed, polite, and the little man walks to the end of Capra's bed and plants himself there and says, Frank Capra? Frank Capra? You ought to be ashamed. Here you lie feeling sorry for yourself while out there the world is going to hell. There's a depression. Most people are out of a job. They've lost hope. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. And they hear war drums. They're frightened, and for good reason. But you, Mr. Capra, are in a position to help them. You have been given a marvelous gift. You have the incredible privilege of being able to whisper into the audience's ears for two hours while they're alone in the dark. You can lift people up, encourage them, give them back their hope, make them believe in their dreams. For God's sake, Mr. Capra, use your talents, use your incredible gifts to make this world a better place. And then without saying a word, according to Capra, or giving his name, the little man simply vanished. And the next morning, Frank Capra got out of bed and went back to work. He never forgot the mysterious little man or his message. He wrote about him in his autobiography. And over the next 20 years, Capra went on to produce and direct a string of unforgettable classics, inspiring films like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Meet John Doe, Why We Fight, and It's a Wonderful Life. Now, there's no way to know if this story about the mysterious little man really happened or not. Did Capra fall asleep and dream it? Did he make it up? Probably he just made it up. And in a way, I hope that's true. Because if so, it would mean that Capra 
a born storyteller, used storytelling to heal himself. As speechwriters, we have something in common with Frank Capra. No, we don't get to whisper into the audience's ears for two hours alone in the dark. But we do have a platform. It's a face-to-face, heart-to-heart platform. And it's more powerful than the internet. I don't care if the audience is 10 people or 10,000. We can touch those invisible strings that Lincoln talked about. We can give people the one thing they need most, encouragement which comes from courage, from the French le coeur, the heart. There is only one unbreakable rule in speech writing and in public speaking. People need to hear a speaker stand up and speak their truth from the deepest part of themselves. If there is something magical, about great public speaking that we can never fully explain. Perhaps it's because the magician is inside of her own magic. Perhaps it's because a great public speaker is so mesmerized by an idea or an ideal or a vision that without quite realizing it, he hypnotizes or casts a spell on himself first. And the audience gets pulled into that enchantment and they share it and they amplify it. Magic in public speaking is a two-way street. What we give is what we get. And so, if we're willing to listen to Frank Capra's mysterious little man, and if we're willing to follow Lincoln's better angels into the realm of the mystical, if we're willing to feel our way into these mysteries with our guards down and our hearts open, when we get there, we will discover that the audience got there first. And they're waiting. And they're eager to give their hearts back to all of us. Thank you very much.